So I am uh, filling in for Pastor Jeff while he is gone in this series that you guys have been going through on kings and prophets, looking at the kingdom and the history of the Old Testament, the kingdom of Israel that comes together under King David and then the divided kingdom after that. And one of the things since 1 Samuel chapter 8, we see that the people rejected God's direct rule over them, and instead they asked for a king. And it wasn't bad that they asked for a king in particular, but they wanted a king to rule over them so they could be like all the other nations. And there is two things that happen that happen pretty quickly within this story. The first is that the people want a king that's unlike them. They're not actually looking for a human-sized king. They're looking for a savior. They're looking for someone who's superior to them in every way. And the second thing that becomes readily evident is that no human king is ever going to live up to their expectations. And so in that leadership struggle between the people and the kings, both good and bad, there's that wrestling that is common to the human heart that we also desire that kind of king, that kind of leader, and we tend to place our own messianic expectations on the leaders in our society, on the president, on the pastors, on police, on whoever it is that's in a position of authority responsible for the city. We place our messianic expectations on them and tell them, save, save us, fix this, change that, do something. We want a king, we just don't want kings that are flawed. And even King David could not measure up, despite the fact that he is called a man after God's own heart. And so every human is flawed, and we don't like that. It's easy for us to either vilify or exonerate our leaders as all good or all bad, all the time. We like that category. But when there's a leader who does mostly good and then shows their humanity and their feet of clay, we act surprised that they didn't nail it 100% of the time when that was never on the table. That was never on the table that someone who is also made in the image of God like us would perfectly and completely do everything right all the time, especially when they're dealing with me. <clears throat> and so we are going to be looking at a series of vignettes in the life of David that show us both the good and the bad of his life, because there's a lot of lessons in leadership. I'm going to be calling your attention to three things in particular, but the first we see in 2 Samuel 18, we're going to be in 2 Samuel 18 and 19. And in 2 Samuel 18, he is leading in a time of conflict. So right now, what has happened to, to catch you up? Back in chapter 12, uh, David, you, you'll notice in, in uh, chapter 18, verse 2, David tells his commanders, I myself will also go out to war with you. What happened the last time that there was war and David didn't go out? right? So chapter 12, there was war. David hung back, which is why now he's saying, no, I'll go with you. 
In chapter 12, he stayed, he meets Bathsheba, he commits adultery with Bathsheba, and then has her husband murdered. Now, one of the consequences for his disobedience is that the sword would never depart from his house, and that one of his own children would rise up against him. That was prophesied to him through Nathan back then. Shortly after that, one of David's sons, Amnon, develops an infatuation with his sister, Tamar. He ends up raping his sister, Tamar, and the other brother, David's son, Absalom, kills Amnon in the process and then flees. So Absalom kills Amnon, and then he's on the run for three years. Joab, who's David's commander, the, the chief general, goes out and calls Absalom to come back because his father misses him. Absalom finally comes back, and he spends two years on the outskirts of Israel and does not see his father. So to say that David's family was dysfunctional is an understatement. We know he's a man of God, but his family is not healthy. And it really never was. Great king, excellent leader, yes. Father of the year, Not so much. So it's been five years since Absalom saw his father. Joab intervenes again and calls Absalom to the king's palace where finally the two see each other. And very shortly after that is when Absalom stages a coup of his father's throne. And David now is on the run. Absalom has taken over the palace and the city and the guards and the commanders And he is now trying to depose of David. So that's where we come into this passage here. They are now going to war against Absalom. And David musters all of the men. And he says to the three commanders, Joab, Abishai, and Ittai. He says, I want you to deal gently with the young man Absalom for my sake. And it says, and all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. That was a problem. David is being manipulative right now. He is sending mixed messages to the entire kingdom. We're going to war to defeat Absalom, but when you see him, don't hurt him. And he's being manipulative because he's saying that within the earshot of all the people. But he's saying it to his generals because he wants them to hear very clearly what he's saying. Now, what happens here is in chapter 18, verse 10, there's a certain man that sees Absalom, as we read, hanging in the tree. And he tells Joab, hey, I saw Absalom. And Joab says, why didn't you kill him? And this guy says, no way, there is not enough gold in the world that I would touch Absalom after what David said to us today. And finally, Joab says, well, I don't care. He takes three spears, because one's apparently not enough, stabs Absalom and kills him. But this guy now is caught in this trap that David set, because leaders need to recognize the impact that their presence has on others. David can't just spout off like that and not expect there to be some kind of consequences because by being manipulative and not speaking plainly, 
he ended up causing more problems. And here's the thing. David is not able to speak plainly here because he is not yet conscious of his own story. When you are reading the Psalms over superimposed against the history, you get a fuller picture of what's going on in David's life and in his mind, how he's processing all of these things. And for that reason, the first leadership principle here is the greatest gift that a leader can give another person is making sense of their own story. Because our stories impact the way we show up in the world every day. What we have lived, how we have lived, impacts the way that we show up. And here we have David, who is wrestling with this dysfunctional family. He's got sons who have murdered each other, estranged sons that he hasn't seen for years. He's not in a healthy position with most of them. And it comes out through manipulation. Deal gently with the young man Absalom for my sake. So imagine you grew up with an abusive father and you had two younger siblings and it always fell on you to protect your siblings. You grow up feeling it's your role in the world to care for and protect for people. And so you grew up to be a police officer. And every time you can't fix something or save someone, you're absolutely crushed. Those two things aren't unrelated. Or imagine you grew up in foster care bouncing from house to house, never actually having a family to call your own. And then as you turn 18, 19, 20, you find that every relationship you engage in, you sabotage. And you don't even know why you're doing it. There's just something about the dysfunction of pushing people away that feels more right to you than letting yourself be loved. So we just went like six miles under the surface right there. The best thing a leader can do is to make sense of their own stories because our past has more power over our present than we realize. And it's only when we begin to make sense of our inner world, what the Bible calls our soul, which is simply the non-physical part of who we are, your thoughts, your emotions, your feelings. It's not until we make sense that we can make sure the things that happened in the past don't have ultimate say over our future. But you have to be able to do that work and look honestly at all of those kinds of things that will ultimately bite and devour because the things that you are unaware of going on in your soul have power over you. It's the things that you can't name that will bite and devour. The things that you're aware of, however messed up they may be, you can get control over because at least you know what's going on. I'll give you an example that just happened recently. There is a certain type of person that I have a very hard time with. And you meet this kind of person in church all the time. These are the super spiritual people who are always talking about Jesus, and yet somehow it's never really about Jesus. I don't know if that makes sense to you. They've amassed a lot of Bible knowledge, and then they hide behind their knowledge of the Bible 
to avoid the very real spiritual and relational brokenness in their lives. You can tell if someone is that deep with God because of the knowledge of the Word of God, certainly their relationship should reflect that. And you can't seem to find one healthy relationship in this person's life because they weaponize the Bible and they use it to keep people at arm's length. And so they throw spiritual language over their inner lives to explain it away so they don't have to actually deal with the real places Jesus wants to bring redemption. Now, my problem with that person comes from an amalgam of authority figures in my life who told me that I did not measure up either in words or in deed. And when I encounter that kind of person, and they're typically more or less condescending, it reminds me of a way that I don't like feeling. Like we sang in that song, I'm not enough, when I feel like I'm not enough. I hate feeling that way, and whenever I'm in the presence of that person, through no fault of their own, I feel like I'm less than, and I have to overcompensate. That's a part of my story that is real, that I lived unaware of for a very long time. And you can believe that caused a lot of problems in my life relationally with people when I'm unaware of why I really don't like you. And at least now I can recognize, no, there are certain types of people I have a harder time with because of my story. And it's true of you as well. So David is leading here in a time of conflict. We talked about his manipulation. The good thing here is he says he wants to go out to war, and the generals say it's not good for you to go out in verse 3. If we flee, they won't care. If one of us die, they won't care about us, but you're worth 10,000 of us, and David listens to them. So good leadership isn't always having the best answer. Good leadership is being able to find and listen to the right and wisest answer wherever it's found. And David makes a good move here. Granted, he's manipulative in the very next verse, good and bad, but he makes a good move and he listens to his subordinates. There are plenty of leaders that are unable to listen to those that they are serving, feeling that they're superior to them. Because that whole king worship thing goes both ways. For those of us that have been in positions of leadership for a long time, the Bible has some very severe words about guarding our own hearts, that somehow we are better than others because of the amount of time we've been in ministry, because of the amount of Bible knowledge we have, because we went to school for it, because of any number of reasons, the leaders themselves can feel like they're superior. So this is a good move for David here. Now, they go out, Absalom dies. David is still in the castle. The people are coming back. In um, chapter 18, look at verse 31. The news runner, the Cushite, comes and says, Good news for the Lord my king, for the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. 
And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I have died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son? And it was told Joab, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard that day, the king is grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city that day as people steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. The king covered his face and the king cried out with a loud voice, O my son Absalom, O Absalom, my son, my son. You can see what's going on right here in the life of David. David the father is mourning the loss of his son. But David the king needs to lead his people. And there are many seasons of leadership where the leader has to show up despite their own sorrow, despite their own incompleteness, and still lead, still show up. And David is torn here because he's grieving this. It's not just Absalom, and you get the sense when you see how over the top David is being here, that it's not just about Absalom. Absalom was a potent reminder of David's own failure as a father, and now he's dead. And that story is never going to be reconciled. Again, we don't know how much David was aware of what's going on, but if we assume that the people we are reading about in Scripture are actually human beings like you and I, we can guess what's going on in his heart and how difficult this was for him and how he ends up leading and what he does. This is one of the heaviest burdens of leadership, showing up despite your own wounds and your own hurts and everything going on inside of you and still leading. So David's father's heart is sad. He's experiencing shame, which, of course, shame causes us to tell stories about ourselves that are not true but feel true about the entirety of our failure and how we've hurt everyone around us and it kind of spirals and snowballs. That's what shame does. And he's angry at himself and he still has to show up and lead others because now his people, who should have been victorious in battle, had to creep in the city super quiet-like because David is mourning in public so everyone can hear how upset the king is. And they're kind of like, ah, what, are, are, we happy? Are, we, are we doing this? Are we, are we joyful? Are we sad? Do we all take on the king's anxiety? Like, what's going on? Joab, not entirely a good man, but does the right thing. He walks into the king's castle and he smacks David up. And he says, you better listen now. If you do not go out and speak to your people, not one of them will be left tomorrow morning. Dry your tears, get up, clean your face, and talk to your people. And he was right in calling out the king's attention. And to his credit, in verse 8, it says, The king arose and took his seat in the gate. And the people were all told, Behold, the king is sitting in the gate. And all the people came before the king. So he ended up accepting rebuke. But here's the second principle that we come across. Every leader 
is always in the midst of their own sanctification. Every single leader is in the midst of the honesty of who we currently are and the desires of who we'd like to think ourselves to be. And Lord willing, who we may be in the future. But still with that honesty that if I am taking an assessment of all that is true about me, I am going to have to look at some shadows as well as some light. I'm going to have to look at some things that are more painful for me to recognize instead of all of just the positive things. Now, this is a common theme. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul tells Timothy to let his progress be evident to all. And then in verse 16, the very next verse, he says, and keep a close watch over your teaching and yourself. So Timothy, as a pastor, is supposed to keep watch not just on his teaching, but on his life. And he's supposed to lead in a way that his progress would be evident to everybody. Well, now we have a problem. I don't mind so much making mistakes as a leader. I just don't like you knowing about it. <laughs> True story. That's the hard part for me. How else does someone see the progress of a leader unless that leader stumbles and makes mistakes and does not always show up at their best and then has the humility to return and own it and just simply apologize for that? And that is really, really difficult when you feel that you are responsible for having all the answers. And that is why God uses leadership as the very environment to shape some of his people, those that have been called to a position of leadership. But that is also coming in the middle of our own stories. So part of my story is I have been in charge my whole life. I have been called pastor since I was 24 years old. And that's not particularly uncommon, but the older I get, the more I wonder what business a 24-year-old has being put in charge of much of anything. No offense. I was still completely unaware of most of my own inner world. When I started in the ministry, I wasn't even married yet. And yet I had to teach Ephesians 5 and talk to married couples about being married, which I, I supposed was good, but I didn't know. And so there were three things that were at play. I was young, I was gifted, and I was insecure. And two of those things seemed like a liability to me. So I leaned into my gifts, not my youth and not my insecurities. And when young leaders lean into their gifting, we have a problem mistaking gifting for character. And we tend to think they're the same thing. I must be mature because I can speak about it so well. And let's be honest, don't we all do that? We give people passes. The very last conference that I was a part of before everything shut down uh, was a room full of pastors and a very well-known 
public figure gave a message that was hands down the best message I have ever heard on the topic. And every person in that room was blown away. And within six months, it became clear that at the moment he was delivering best sermon ever, he was in the process of grooming the second young woman that he was going to commit adultery with. Not the first, the second. And of course, that came out because things done in the dark always have a way of coming to the light. And he was asked to step down from ministry. So we understand that leaning into the giftings though, right? So I'm, I'm being affirmed for my proactivity and my take charge nature. And then that leaves me feeling now like I always have to be in charge. So I have the bad habit of taking responsibility for things that are not mine to take responsibility for. I take my problems on my shoulder, then I take your problems on my shoulder because I feel responsible for fixing that too. Because I'm supposed to be in charge and people who are in charge fix things. So that's what I'm supposed to do. And that worked for a long time until it didn't. And then life also has a way of catching up. And through a season of incredible loss and grief and pain, I just had no strength to play that game anymore. And it was then that God showed me what it looked like to embrace the kind of vulnerability that leads to you developing the kind of character that no amount of gifting can make up for. That's some stuff right there. Every leader is in the midst of their own sanctification. And all leaders have limited spiritual maturity. Just the fact of life. And I had to learn that I wasn't just a bundle of strengths and gifts and experiences. I was also a mix of limitations, weaknesses, and shadow sides that I'm not super comfortable talking about. But all of those are true about who I am. And so that is difficult, no matter how long you've been in ministry, no matter how theologically knowledgeable you are, no matter how much Bible trivia you've amassed in your lifetime. That does not automatically translate into maturity, just as suffering doesn't automatically make us stronger people unless we learn to take that suffering and make sense of it in the light of Jesus' own suffering and learn from that. Last thing here, leadership in a time of division. So David is leading in a time of conflict, then he's leading in a time of sorrow. Now it's a time of division that's not unlike our own time right now. The kingdom is divided. You still have people that are team Absalom, people that are team David. You have people that are team Israel in the north or team Judah in the south. So the whole kingdom is divided against each other, and now David needs to strive for unity. He is trying to bring together this divided kingdom, and there are, much like today, two warring factions of all of these different people groups. So in the same way, Jesus says in Matthew 12 that a, king divided, a kingdom divided against itself can't stand, David recognizes that he is going to have to act quickly and wisely to preserve some kind of unity in this kingdom. Now, 
he pursues Judah, which is the royal tribe, and the king's own city. The problem is it's the people of Judah and the leaders of Judah that had crowned Absalom king. So David is going into enemy territory, and he wants them to invite him back. Because he realizes if he can win over the enemy, it's going to make it a lot easier for people who didn't want him to be king to actually submit to his rule. So David comes here, and he ends up replacing Joab, his general, with Amasa, who is the general of Absalom's army. So this is the perfect illustration of keeping your friends close, but your enemies closer. David puts the enemy general on his staff and asks for all of the leaders to have him bring them back. And this is an incredibly strategic move because new kings who step into those kind of situations typically kill all of the military and political leaders. That would have been absolutely common in that day. And instead, he is trying a different approach. And that leads us to our third and last principle, which is true leadership is expressed through influence, not authority. True leadership is expressed through influence, not authority. And instead of forcing his rule on Israel by coming back, he wants them to willingly bring them back. Look at chapter 19, verse 11. King David sent this message to Zadok and Abiathar the priests. Say to the elders of Judah, why should you be the last to bring the king back to the house when the word of all Israel has come to the king? You are my brothers. You are my bone and my flesh. Why then should you be last to bring back the king? And say to Amasa, are you not my bone and my flesh? God, do so to me and more also if you are not commander of my army from now on in the place of Joab. And he swayed the heart of all the men of Judah as one man so that they sent word to the king, return both you and all your servants. Leaders who rely on their position of authority to lead, typically do so out of fear or anger. And those kinds of leaders have a way of making everything about themselves. Leading through influence takes a lot longer. Leading through influence means you actually care about the people that you're serving. It means that you have to do the hard work of relationship building over time until there's actually a proven track record that others can trust about your character, that you are who you say you are every time you show up. And you can say that to another person, but it takes time in order for me to feel safe with you. Because the longer you've lived, the more you've been betrayed, the more you've been hurt, and the more you realize it's foolish to just trust everyone who says, trust me. And so we're a little bit sketch about that, right? Like, okay, I appreciate that. We'll, we'll see. We'll see. I'm going to keep showing up, but we'll, we'll see what happens. Influence, though, leads us to act in wisdom based on who we are as people, not on authority that was given to us because of our position. So here's what David does, and this is really wise. In, chapter, in verse 16 through 23, he pardons a traitor named Shimei. Now, you might remember Shimei 
when David was leaving, this is the dude that threw rocks at David's head and started kicking up dust on him. And Joab said, hey, I could cut his head off. Should I do that? And David said, no, let him throw rocks. Who knows? Maybe these curses are from God. So David meets up with Shimei again, and this time Shimei sounds a whole lot different than he did the first time, and David pardons him. And by doing so, he's offering amnesty to everybody who supported Absalom. That's a really wise move for a leader. And so he's drawing people to him there, and he's not alienating former enemies. And then later on in chapter 19, in verse 24, we come across another guy we've met, Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth was the crippled man who was of the house of Saul that David wanted to show kindness to. And when David was leaving the city on the run from Absalom, Mephibosheth didn't see him out. And so David says, where were you? And he says, my servant Ziba tricked me and I couldn't come out, but believe me, I'm so glad you're home. So David's shoring up that base. And then the very last in chapter 19 and 31 through 40, he rewards this man named Barzillai who's just a faithful citizen. David wants to give him land, but he's elderly, and he says, it would be too much hassle for me to move from where I am right now. I'm just happy to have you home as well. Each of those three stories shows David acting with influence and wisdom there, knowing that the use of authority to demand obedience only creates more division and stokes up the flames there. Here's where we land. All of these vignettes of the life of David, some good, some bad, only Jesus is all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-wise. Only Jesus never makes a misstep in his leadership. Only Jesus never actually needs to apologize. All of the good and all of the bad in David were in the same person. The fact is, David was capable of incredible leadership. And David was capable of incredible selfishness. Both in the same person. Was he a good guy or a bad guy? Eh, he was a guy. Saved by grace. Which is true of all of those leaders, and we have to make room to be honest with who we currently are, where we'd like to be, and who we'd like to believe we are, and wisdom to know how to close that gap. Because any real transformation in the life of a leader comes from the life and death of Jesus. And so Jesus is the only one who led during a time of conflict between Rome and the Jewish nation. Jesus perfectly led in that time of conflict, bringing people together. And despite his own agony and sorrow, when he was dying on the cross on our behalf, he still prayed for those who were tormenting him, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. Jesus is able perfectly to step into a season of sorrow and still perfectly lead others in front of him. And during that period of division between the Pharisees fighting against the Jews, the Roman leaders fighting against the Jews, there's all kinds of different factions. 
Jesus alone is able to unite them by introducing the concept of the kingdom of God, which is neither the kingdom of Rome, neither the kingdom of Israel. It's a third way. And invite them all into it. And for that reason, whenever we are let down by leaders, whenever we are tempted to believe that we expected better out of them, there is a reasonable place to hold people accountable to their word when their actions don't match. But there may just as well be a situation where we just need to chalk that up to humanity. And in the same way they made a misstep, I know what that feels like myself. And any disappointment that's left lingering is an invitation to trust Jesus instead of a human leader, knowing he's the only one who won't disappoint or fail. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this morning. I thank you just for the relevancy of your word over and over again. And we are looking at another nation's history thousands of years ago. And it still makes sense to us today. There is a lot that changes in culture. There is a lot that changes from people group to people group. And then there are just some things that are universally true. And so I thank you that your word is a faithful guide to how to live, how to die for that matter, how to be honest, how to trust, how to lead, any number of situations. And I thank you that the end goal of this guide is a deep and true encounter with Jesus. May that be so of us. In Jesus' name, amen.